In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 21. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. I'm going to cut to the chase. I'm not entirely sure you're going to be able to hear this episode. Things have been getting very strange around here, and in Jersey with Joanna. And I don't know if it's just all in our heads or if there's something else going on. You see, Joanna and I both have been hearing noise in our heads every time we're near those stories, the ones we simply have to tell. The noise is hard to discern sometimes. It's like a static, other times like a beeping. But more frequently than not, we can hear low-key numbers and counting in our minds, but not in any order we can discern. At one point, I was sure I could make out the date October 17th, 2021, but I could be wrong. The bottom line is this. As the days have gone on, we're sure the static or noise, whatever you call it, is getting louder. What's worse is that we both feel like we're somehow slowly being reconditioned or reprogrammed. Needless to say, we're both finding it very unsettling. The reason I'm concerned about the audio on this episode is because we've struggled to make some of the stories clear and audible. It's like there's bugs in our audio software. And it makes sense when you consider a story Joanna discovered when the noise in her head grew agonizingly loud. I call it a story, but it appears to be nothing but a strange log file of bug reports for an obscure software company's mobile app. I think the developer's name is Alexander Sproul. I know Dan Zapula, Atticus Jackson, and Graham Rowett did some good work on this one, so let's hope it comes through clearly. So glitches and noise aside, here's Application Redacted Bug Reports. Application ID 626377. User ID AS4426337. Date January 21, 2020. Author's note. I'm not sure who at... will read this. But I wanted to preface this document with a note that I am aware that this writing is not on the company's required standard format. I do not wish to be paid for this report. I only ask that it be read by someone at in full and that my recommendations be taken into account. 
Description of application. Is a business assistant mobile application for working professionals that uses natural language processing, NLP, to schedule meetings and respond to business inquiries during times at which the user's calendar is marked as busy. The idea is that the user is relieved of some administrative duties, while the application responds to scheduling inquiries as if it is the user. Bug report number 001. Details. I downloaded this application on my using as my operating system, OS. The permission requests were extensive. The application had access to my camera, gallery, text messages, social media, contacts, email, calendar, files, location, and more. If I didn't have the security of knowing the application was backed by this would have been a deterrent for me. If I can be quite frank, I was drawn to on the notion that its errors would be hilarious. An artificial intelligence, AI, trying to be me seemed like a recipe for disasters that I could laugh about with my coworkers at a later date. To my surprise, the app's predictive text capabilities were outstanding and an absolute testament to how far NLP has come in recent years. Not only did its generated text messages demonstrate an incorporation of context in its responses, but it also seemed to respond consistently with my own demeanor. By all accounts, passed the Turing test. Not a single person that interacted with the application indicated any awareness that they were not talking to me. In fact, I decided to see if the AI would hold up in a less professional setting. My wife was gone on a work trip and I had the house to myself. I set my availability to busy for an entire evening and let the AI respond to any messages from my friends and family. This is when I identified a first potential problem. Below is a text exchange that occurred during that period. Hey, man. Haven't heard from you in a while. Everything okay? Hey, yeah, sorry. And I have been pretty busy lately. What's up? Had having a beer or three. <laughs> Close by, come join. Seats free at the table. Sorry, man. I'm actually feeling sick tonight. Massive stomachache the last few days. Beer probably won't settle well. Have fun, though. Maybe another time. The first message is from my brother, who has a history of alcoholism. We have a good relationship, but I make a point of not drinking with him. I believe the AI predicted that I would not want to join, and even went as far as to find a viable excuse for me not to go. I could only find a single message that I had sent to my wife that day saying that my stomach was acting up again. Regardless, I was apprehensively impressed with its capabilities. On one hand, its response is almost certainly one that I would have considered sending. On the other hand, I had the unsettling feeling of a loss of agency. It mattered to me that I didn't get to deny his invitation myself. The more I thought about it, the more torn I became. Didn't I download 
to avoid messaging people myself? Wasn't that the point of leaving the AI active that night? If something had happened to my brother, would it have mattered to me that something else was responsible for our last conversation? This has been on my mind, and I still don't know. I wouldn't have gone anyway. I would have probably said something similar. If anything, I am ashamed to admit that something other than me knows that. Recommendation My recommendation is that the developers remove the AI's capability to make decisions about whether to attend meetings. Despite remarkable predictive accuracy with its decisions, a better alternative would be to wait for the user to decide. A consequence of these changes could also be restraint in the app's extensive permission requirements. I personally would accept a reduction in the AI's representation of my personality for the ease of mind in knowing my decision hadn't been predetermined. Bug Report Number 002 Details I have been using for two weeks now. The device and OS, with the exception of a minor update, I am using are both the same from my previous bug report. However, I have downloaded the software on three older models using virtual machines, VMs, and found no difference in its capabilities. It has integrated well into my work life and I am continually impressed with how much time it has saved me. It turns out that I like meeting with people more than I like planning meetings. I decided to share my experiences with my coworkers, close friends, family, and my wife. They were shocked to learn that they had been texting a robot while I was at work. There were several times when, unbeknownst to me, I had agreed to go to dinner or, to my wife's delight, shovel the driveway when I got home. This next part is more difficult for me to write, and I apologize if I am overstepping the line between professional and personal. Instead of explaining the situation, I have included a series of texts between me and my best friend after I had a particularly bad argument with my wife. I trust that the reader will keep my information confidential. 11.11 p.m. Hey, and I just got into another pretty bad fight. Any chance we could grab a coffee? I need to clear my head. 11.14 p.m. Of course, I'm just finishing up at the hospital now. Might need a few minutes to get showered and changed. Issue with a patient, don't ask. Uh, is that okay? 11.14 p.m. Yes, thank you. 11.15 p.m. What's going on? 11.18 p.m. I haven't told you this, and I honestly don't know if I can say it out loud. And I have been trying to have a kid now for the past few months. And it turns out that I'm the problem. I know I shouldn't be ashamed, but I am. We're both upset, and I lashed out at her. She just seems so distant since we found out, and I need support. We can talk more about it at... 
Gonna head out shortly just to drive around a bit. 11.19 p.m. I understand. Is it okay if I ask what the specialist said the cause was? 11.19 p.m. It's fine. She said it's abnormal sperm production. Could be chemical from when I used to do the volunteer firefighting. 11.20 p.m. Wow. I'm so sorry to hear that. Well, I don't want to make your day any worse, but you should know that infertility is a risk factor for testicular cancer. You're also quite tall, hit puberty early, and smoke inhalation, cannabis or otherwise, is another big one. I don't mean to worry you, but you might want to get checked. 11.21 p.m. I took the day off tomorrow after me and argument. I'll go to a walk-in, thanks. I wouldn't have known to check for that. 11.22 p.m. Looking out for you since 86, man. I'll see you soon. 11.23 p.m. On my way. Meet you there. Coffee's on me. 11.23 p.m. Awesome. I'll text you when I'm heading out. 11.40 p.m. Hey, so this is kind of awkward. I'm only just reading your messages now. I've been using that app you told me about while I'm at work, and uh, I guess it knew exactly what to say. I'm so sorry that you and are fighting. I can't imagine how difficult it must be for both of you. I'm on my way right now. 11.42 p.m. Actually, that makes two of us. I guess I set the app's activation from 9 a.m. this morning to 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. The last message I sent you was at 11.18 p.m. 11.43 p.m. Well, the app might have saved your life. Everything it said about testicular cancer is true. You should get tested, man. I followed through and got tested the next day. When I explained the risk factors to the doctor, I was immediately referred to a specialist. I got the diagnosis yesterday. Testicular cancer, stage 1B. I can't even name most of the places it has spread. I haven't told my wife yet. I don't want her to be sorry for the way she treated me. I don't want her to know that I feel ashamed and emasculated. But the prognosis is good. The doctor expects me to live at least five years beyond my diagnosis. I might actually owe my life to I start treatment next week. My mind has been full since I found out, but it always comes back to this app. I can't help but wonder who I'm talking to whenever I receive messages. I started asking people to call me instead of text, and the AI caught on and started asking them itself. There is no privacy setting that allows me to specify what information can and can't be shared. It was sheer luck that it only sent my medical information to my best friend. Recommendation. The NLP algorithm has a sense of context, but no sense of boundaries or ethics. I don't know if this is the sort of thing that can be programmed. Similar to my previous recommendation, I believe the AI's access to certain information, i.e. medical, financial, etc., should be restricted or certain categories of data should be marked as prohibited from discussion. Alternatively, an option for the user to select information that can and cannot be shared is another viable step in the right direction. I also believe it should be required that the application indicate whether or not it is active when sending messages, 
My experience suggests that widespread usage of this app could lead to high levels of paranoia among its users. Bug Report Number 003 Details It's been a month. When launched last week, I realized that there's no point in deleting it. The only way to know if someone is truly talking to me is to speak with them in person. I suppose I could ask for a photo with the current date and time, but I can already name technologies that could fake them. The same goes for phone calls. Somebody must have read my bug reports because a large sum of money was deposited into my bank account by This will be my last bug report. Don't worry. The cancer isn't killing me. I did find out that the tumor is either blocking my sperm from leaving my body or somehow preventing me from producing any sperm at all. There's something like a 50-50 chance I'll be able to have a kid once I've undergone treatment. I still haven't told my wife. We haven't been in a great place. I guess I should thank you. My wife is pregnant and, had I not downloaded the app, I never would have known how impossible that was. I asked my specialist about it, and the look on her face was the same look I imagined my wife having when I told her about my cancer. Pity, discomfort, maybe even a little bit of self-serving denial. I'm typing this on my phone. I want the AI that seems to be so great at being me to know what it did to my marriage and feel the way that I feel, if it's even capable of that. It's not the app's fault. But I think about that lack of choice I felt when I messaged my brother. The same result came with me feeling like my hand was tied to a predetermined truth. I could have experienced that joy of thinking I was going to be a father. My wife could have experienced the guilt that she would have needed to tell me before I found out about her lies on my own. And would it matter? Probably not. But I would have felt something better. I think I'm okay with the illusion of choice. I started activating Application Redacted. Whenever I didn't want to talk to people, and it turns out, that's a lot. I've read some pretty great conversations that I've had with other people. I'm particularly proud of the cover letter that it wrote to get me a real job. My days as a software tester were over as soon as I found a company that did blind interviews over text chat. I slept through the interview and woke up with a doubled salary. Recommendation. You're probably asking, what's the bug? It turns out that it's me. My experience with has consistently proved to me that your AI is a better version of myself, and it comes with updates. Today, I decided it was time to tell my wife about my cancer and what I knew about her pregnancy. When I checked my phone, I read an entire conversation between her and I which culminated in my asking for a divorce. The best part? She left her phone at the house on the bedside table when she left for work. Our AIs had broken up with each other. 
I've set my calendar to a permanent state of busy and spent the money from bug testing on a gun. I don't even know how to fire it. What would the best version of myself do? Now that there's a better me, wouldn't the world be a better place without my version in it? Right now, I can assure you that I have no idea. But my choice is already made. When you start dating someone, you know there will be the inevitable moment that will inspire a knot in your stomach and sweat on your brow. I mean, of course, meeting your partner's parents. And in this tale, shared with us by author Matt Richardson, we join a man who finally meets his girlfriend's folks. Let's just hope they approve of their daughter's choice in men. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Mike Delgadio, and Nicole Goodnight. So dress nicely, be polite, and relax. I'm sure they'll like you. Now, just knock on the red door. Everything begins with the red door. We knock. I straighten my collar. I pull up my pants. Ginny gestures wildly at my zipper. That zipper. And I realize with horror, shit, the fly is open. I fight wildly to get it in place. Sweat builds on my brow. The hot White Valley sun beats down on my back like we're stuck in the Caribbean. And the fabric is stuck. Of course the fabric is stuck. The fabric always gets stuck. They make these goddamn pants just to get stuck on a schmuck like me. The zipper is caught on my boxers. I'm pulling. Jenny tries to help, but she's making it worse. Stop making it worse. The red door opens before we even have a chance to fix it. And then I'm standing there with my hands on my crotch and my girlfriend's hands there too. Her parents stare blankly ahead. The holidays are a stressful time for everybody. We laugh it off and we step into the kitchen. I go in for the handshake. Jenny says it's better to shake hands when meeting people for the first time. You have to keep boundaries, Maddie. People respect boundaries. Mr. Weber has a firm grip. He's the type of man to look you in the eyes when he does it. Mrs. Weber's handshake is dainty and petite. She asks if I prefer coffee or tea, and I say, Tea, Regina, please. Coffee makes me jittery. We sit down at the oval kitchen table. Roger wants to know my occupation. He is a professor just to pay the bills, you know, but it's independent study which intrigues him the most. White Valley University keeps their checkbooks open when it comes to research. 
He hired two new interns just this past fall, and you would not believe the things these kids uncover in the lab. Mind-blowing stuff, Matt. Really world-altering stuff. Roger asked questions in the crooked way only a concerned father could ask. So what are your passions? Where do you see yourself in five years? I tell him about my company. Dynatap may be a small fish in the big market, but we have growth potential. Just this week we received a report which stated that 3,000 people use our program daily. The free version of our app is booming, but we are working on a solution to move folks into paid subscriptions. I believe our next product will accomplish this goal. Oh? And uh, what is the name of this product? I'd leap to tell him the name. I know the name. Of course I know the name. I live this product. I breathe this product. It consumes every inch of my life. I plastered the name throughout thousands of lines of code again and again, working night after night just to get it right. This product is my baby. My future kids will know the name. Why the fuck can't I just remember the name? Just say the name, doofus. The man is waiting. I have to check my notes. Ginny laughs nervously. Regina looks on in despair. Roger is angry now. Not good, Maddie. Not good. Ginny said to never make Roger angry. Huh. You created a product that will change your company's future. You can't even remember the name? Think, think, think. Roger's getting out of his chair now. Why would he get up? Oh God, we're in a booth. There's not a lot of room. I have to move just to get out of the way. The kitchen table is shaking. Oh God, he's pissed. Jenny said to never make Roger pissed. Think, think, think. Think, doofus. Think fast. Roger pauses. He sits back down. He lets loose a smile full of crooked teeth and thinning gums. Regina smiles too. She brushes back a tendril of styled hair and sets down the tea, three sugars, before sliding next to me. Regina wants to know about my mother. Regina says a good man always looks after mom. My mother lives on Andover Street, Mrs. Weber. I'm sure she'd love to meet you too. Regina, please. Roger jumps back in. Roger wants to know more about the product. He loves tech projects. He loves the name. He loves the concept. I talked for hours about online banking capability, microtransactions, minimum fees. Dinner comes and goes. Dessert does too. Roger is interested. Roger is impressed. He worked on Wall Street, you know, just for a little bit. Not everybody can hack it with those big number boys. Soon enough, my glass gets empty and Roger is rushing to fill it with more beer. Good beer. The quality kind of stuff. He gushes through a mouthful of high alcohol content IPA. Think best, eh? Think vest. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Ginny floats back to the table. She and her mother just finished the dishes. She's got the sleeves of that blue dress pulled up now. And dear God, she's a vision. 
She slides down into my lap with an arm draped around my shoulder in the angelic sort of way women do, with black bangs dripping over light hazel eyes. The sleeve of her dress slips up and she kisses my cheek, and my mind wanders to a place it shouldn't wander. She asks if you boys are done in here, as Roger lights up the butt of an already used cigar. Seems like you got a hell of a guy here. One last question. I nod. Roger likes a curt nod. What the hell do you want with my daughter? I laugh. Ginny laughs and slugs his shoulder. I look down in humility. I feel like I know Roger now. I feel like I know what he wants to hear. I know what any father would want to hear. I look him in the eyes when I say it. I love her. I want to marry her one day. Roger smiles. Well, okay then. The evening ends with a vintage bottle of wine. 1983. The good stuff. Ginny looks as giddy as a teenager in her little blue dress. She smirks with a giggle and shucks off the shoulder strap slowly. SpongeBob bedsheets smile back at us unabashedly from the top of her tiny little twin. Pictures of pop culture icons and articles about her dad decorate the walls. A mirror reflects any teenage boy's dream. You passed. You finally passed. She pounces into my arms. Her perfume dances through my nose like candy. She pulls me into the soft spot between her neck and her shoulder blades. And I've discovered peace. Pure and unadulterated peace. I want to stay in that peace forever. Nothing would make me happier than staying here forever. But the lights go out. And the world turns to black. I wake up sometime after two in the morning. The house is dark. Ginny sniffles from the slightly far side of the bed. Roger snores from down the hall. Somebody tosses and turns, probably Regina, but I don't care if she's close to waking up. She can wake up if she damn well wants to, because I need water. God damn it, am I thirsty? Why am I so thirsty? I get up and curse the creaking bed as my soft feet shuffle quietly across the cold wood floor. The staircase has two creaking stairs, I don't know why I remember that, but I do, and I avoid them perfectly on my silent descent into the kitchen. I hit the light. The refrigerator has one of those water filters built inside. Paper cups are in the cabinet. Nobody will even notice. There won't be any dishes. I'll just grab some blissfully cold water and sneak back upstairs to my beautiful Jenny. But then, something clatters in the basement. At first I pretend I don't hear it, probably just a Christmas box. Maybe the storm started earlier. Maybe the wind got inside. But then the clatter rings again, and again, and again. And it's getting to the point where I have to see what it is. What the fuck could it be? Jenny never said anything about a pet. Jenny never said anything about mice or rats or any other shit living in the house let alone the basement, but that sure as hell sounds like something living, because I can hear it shaking now. Did it speak? 
thought I heard somebody speak. I peeked down the basement corridor. I stepped down. The stairs are carpeted and protected from my horrible creaking. It's dark, too dark to see. I pull out my cell. The damn thing doesn't work ever since we got inside, but the flashlight still should. I step down again. I stumble for the button and point the phone towards the spot in the corner that's making all that damn noise. And then, I'm looking at myself. I'm staring at an exact replica of me. I don't know how else to describe it. It's me. I'm chained to a wall. I'm wearing a business suit. My tie is a little bit crooked and green, contrary to my current red. But the outfit is otherwise similar. Black shoes, black belt, white shirt. A red bruise ripens my forehead. In the corner, by the temple, and blood leaks slowly from the center. Run. Get the fuck out of here. I turn the flashlight around the basement and my breath stops. My heart pounds. A dozen versions of me decorate the basement wall like trophies. There's a version of me with board shorts. There's a version of me with a crew cut haircut. There's a version of me with a man bun and a fucking meme shirt at me. And then there's a version of me with a tuxedo. All of them are chained up and bloodied. All of them are dead. Each one of them is more fucking dead than the last. With throat gashes, bruises, and eyes blanker than the fish my father used to catch on his old boat with the barnacles. What's dead is dead, Maddie, he used to say. Don't spend time looking for the dead. Run. They're going to wake up. Sure as shit, he's right. I'm right. We're both right. We're all right. Roger isn't snoring anymore. That's not good. Roger always snores at night. If he's not snoring, then Ginny is awake. And Regina's probably not far behind. Roger keeps a gun in the safe and pliers in the kitchen. Not good, Maddie. Not good. The door upstairs opens. Closes with a bang. The window. Now. I'm running across the basement. I'm pulling desperately at the clasp. It's stuck. Of course, the damn thing is always stuck. They make these windows just to get stuck on a schmuck like me. Roger's walking into the kitchen now. Not good, Maddie. Not good. He'll have the pliers soon. I can hear him cursing to Regina. Not good, sweetie. Not good. The clasp breaks free. I can't believe it. The wailing wall breaks and a breath of fresh air pours in over my brow. Roger is out the door now. Green Tie tries to distract him. I leap up, sneak my fat butt through the narrow space. The fresh air feels so good. I don't remember it feeling so good. The night sky looks beautiful. I don't remember it looking so beautiful. There's a struggle in the basement. Curses and shouting rip through an otherwise silent night. Roger rushes up the stairs. He stumbled outside. He rushes and fumbles for the keys while getting into his car. 
But it's too late. Too, too late. Because I am gone. Gone, gone, gone. It takes a lot to try and start my life over. I move out of state. I find a new job, and a new name, and a new apartment. I live on my own, away from people. And I try to put Ginny and her crazy fucking family behind me. Even if I still dream about her all the time. I want more than anything to go back to the person from before. I want to go back to the person who sat underneath his father's boat for hours and cleaned the barnacles. I want to go back to listening to his stories. But one day, it occurs to me, after a long time spent dwelling, the facts of my life are only that. Facts. I can't hear their voices anymore. I can't see their faces anymore. It occurs to me that I can't truly remember anything anymore. Everything in my life begins with the red door. With space probes reaching other planets and more and more people launching themselves into space, we can't help but assume that before long, humans will explore our vast universe over greater distances. And as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author C. McKelvey, it doesn't make sense to keep star travelers awake and active when they can be sent into a deep, dark, cryo-sleep. Performing this tale are Penny Scott Andrews, and Andy Cresswell. So let's look for the cryo containers, oddly marked for one Zorin F. Dofo. At first, there was only darkness. No lights permeated the endless void, and no movement broke the stillness. The black abyss lay silent and vast, as it had done for millennia. Suddenly, within the sea of nothing, there was the faintest of ripples. The phoenix moved slowly through the abyss. Aside from the intense, fiery blaze erupting from its propulsion units, bathing the immense ship in an eerie glow, no lights could be seen aboard. Inside, the vast structure was lifeless and dead. Rows of computer banks containing centuries' worth of data sat sleeping, waiting for their operators to awaken. No footsteps fell in the long corridors, and the thousands of doors that were littered throughout the vast spacecraft were sealed. The only sounds came from the roar of the ship's engines, 
the bleeping of its life support systems and the whir of machinery in the three large chambers that form the Leviathan vessel. Within these three identical halls, neatly arranged in rows that stretched as far as any human eye could see, were thousands of coffin-like objects that hummed quietly with power. The walls were metallic and blank, save for ten letters that stood huge and proud in the centre of each. Zorin, F. Dofo. The room itself was as dark and lacking in atmosphere as the endless nothing outside. Inside each casket, however, was a precisely maintained frozen environment, supplied by vast chemical tanks underneath the chambers. Each was also illuminated by a row of bright white lights, and it was these lights that would have allowed an observer to perceive a blobby form inside. Some pinkish, some darker, some taller, some smaller, some thinner and some fatter. These forms were only just discernible due to the layers of frost that lined the glass covers of the coffins. Thus it was that the last remnants of humanity slept silently, frozen and guarded by machines awaiting the future and whatever it may bring. Seven million men, women and children lining the steel sarcophagi for a voyage that would last them centuries. A voyage that had begun just seven hours previously. And so, the ship lay silent, its cargo adrift in a sea of dreams, frozen in both body and mind, sleeping peacefully. All bar one. Seven hours into his journey, Arthur Jacobs awoke with a scream. Jacobs. I, I, I was a resident of the 14th planet in the surviving circle. If, 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 if anyone can hear me, anyone at all, I'm awake. I, 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 I don't know what's happened or why. I, I think the others are still asleep. It has taken me long enough to work that out. To begin with, I, I thought I was just the first, you know? That maybe everyone else had just overslept. Or possibly the process was gradual and I just happened to wake up early. I mean, who knows how the angel's technology works? I certainly fucking don't. I just leapt at the chance to live. Then I saw the clock. Seven hours. Seven hours in a voyage of centuries. Life support equipment. Isn't that what the angel's voice said? Or Zorin's, or whoever it was. That each casket has its own monitoring equipment. 
something that watches our heartbeats, checks our sleep, etc. Mind you, they also said each box would fucking freeze their occupant. Calm. Have to stay calm. All I can do is hope that whatever is supposed to be watching me notices soon. My group leader mentioned that each casket had recording equipment built in too so that the angels can hear us in our sleep and send help should anything happen. I can't see anything that looks like this recording me. No microphones or anything, but who knows what the angels are capable of. Anyway, I hope they were right about the recording equipment. Otherwise I'm about to spend a long time talking to myself. I tried using the emergency protocols. The codes we were made to memorize over and over again in the weeks before the rest. Not a single one worked. It didn't even look like the equipment responded, or if there was any way for it to. I'll try again soon. I have to. I hope I didn't damage the casket. Maybe that's it. When I woke, I, I kind of freaked out. I mean, when you're supposed to wake up a couple of thousands of years in the future and you only manage seven hours, a lot of scary thoughts enter your head. I tried kicking the glass, even had a go at smashing it with my fists. My hands are all bloody. The angels never said anything about any risks. They said they'd watch over everything. They said they'd save us. They never said I'd lie here trapped, alone. I don't want to die. Ten hours into the journey of the Phoenix. They haven't noticed. The machines, I mean. I guess if they were going to, they would have by now, right? I tried to sleep a little. Kind of hoped that if I did, maybe it would all kick in and I'd end up a good little ice cube like everyone else. Fat chance. Now I'm just laid here thinking the worst. Thinking, what's going to run out first? The air or me? The oxygen is definitely switched off. I held my hand against the vent and there's nothing coming through. The carbon extractor's working though, so at least I can be thankful I won't go into a coma. I'll be conscious when I suffocate. If I suffocate... Maybe I'll starve. How long is it they say someone can go without food or water? Ten days? No, that seems too long. Far too long. Is it three? Or maybe I just don't want to be trapped in this box for ten days staring at those big old letters on the wall. Funny, I, I still don't know what Zoran F. Dofo means. Guess I never will. Positive thoughts. Isn't that what people say when shit hits the fan? Certainly what my mum used to say. Anyway, surviving without food, I should be used to that. I wonder if my mum thought positive thoughts on New Babylon. I wonder how she managed to keep calm then. How she starved. Oh yeah, she was on New Babylon. That hellhole of a colony on the outer rim of the Earth Union built on the ruins of a lost world, its secrets buried with its cities. She was 20 at the time, perfect age to be one of the spent youth that looked on Mitri as their great hope. 
as the man to bring them out of the darkness of Earth Union control and into the light of independence. My mum was there when Mitri celebrated his first year in office, said how the people had cheered, how she'd cheered. The 29-year-old Mitri had just stood basking in the glory, immaculate in his ceremonial frock coat and crimson cravat, his short raven hair perfectly sculpted, an upper-class civil servant who got to the top through hard work, the pencil pusher done good. Then it started to go wrong. Then they started to starve. I wonder what mum would say if she could see me now. Probably something about, don't know when you're born, we didn't have caskets on New Babylon. Guess she was right. Everyone knows about the bodies lining the streets. The few for the many. That was Mitri's motto. By the time he was finished, it was more the other way around. When the crops failed and the food ran out, he wouldn't go running to Earth Union, he said. Wouldn't lose face, wouldn't back down. Instead, my mum said, he stood proud, smiling and effervescent as he declared the new enemies of the state. The outsiders, the poor. The execution started and they didn't stop. When one group was finished, he just moved on. By the time rebels got themselves organized, the planet was already decimated. The 1848 crew, they were called. My mum never heard the name of their leader. She never named herself. Said some shit about the whole, not the individual. My mum reckoned people admired her for that. You know, everyone's starving and selfish, yet she talks about them all in it together and nobody even knew her name. She said 1848 was something in Earth history, a time when people had stood up and said, no more. She reckoned that was what they had to do then, had to follow their example. And they did. Mitri's troops didn't stand a chance. Mitri himself stood on the palace balcony, disheveled and screaming, begging for them not to make him do it. The people didn't listen though. My mum reckons they didn't care. They'd smelt blood and they wanted it. Wanted Mitri. The plague was released as soon as they broke through the palace doors. Eleven hours into the journey of the Phoenix. I've tried to sleep more. Hasn't worked. I had another go at smashing the glass too. That didn't work either. I might try and sleep in a bit. Maybe try the codes again. Or start accepting I'm fucked. My mum used to say that's what she did when the plague swept New Babylon. She was one of the clever few who'd sheltered beneath the cities. Didn't even know that upstairs Mitri had ensured that the plague took the Union too. How the rest of it went, I don't think anybody knows. I imagine when you lot wake up and get to go off and live your happy little lives, you might have kids. Some of those kids might go to college, get degrees, and devote their lives to finding out exactly how it all went so wrong. Academics and intellectuals who'll spend years trying to figure out just how we fucked up so much. After all, six billion people wiped out across 17 planets. We can't blame it all on Mitri. 
Mitri wasn't the one who issued further executions. Mitri wasn't the one who locked us in little communities, who fought for what little food and life there was. Wasn't the one who killed his mate for a loaf of bread. Wasn't the one who licked his lips at the rotting bodies and wondered how sweet they might taste. By that point, Mitri was rotting himself. Guess I can't complain too much. It's the world I was born into. My dad said they had me because they didn't know what else to do. People have kids, he said. So we had you. Survival of the species and all that. I fucking laughed at that. I'd been dying from the day I was born. I haven't known anything else, save what I've read in books. Didn't seem like there was much survival going on to me. Forty years of poverty and pestilence. I have to wonder if we'd just given up, decided to just roll over and die. And then they came. I didn't believe the stories when I first heard them. I had no reason to. We were dying. Everybody was. There was no food. There would never be any food, and eventually I would die because of this. Simple, hard fact. Angels coming to save us all. A coping mechanism, that's what. Fairy stories. Then they landed on our world. Well, they didn't, of course. No one's ever actually seen an angel. I wonder if you will. If, when you lot wake up, the angels will be there too. Weird. Reckon I'm more jealous of that than you going off and getting to live. Yeah, I ain't getting out of this box. I can feel the air getting thinner as I speak. Haven't got much else left to do though, have I? Nothing else but talking. Anyway, the point is, it wasn't until their ship landed and the message came booming out across the desolate wastes and through the streets of the shantytown that I first truly became a believer. The shining craft seemed to float above the desert soil. It didn't have any legs that I could see. It just hung there, like magic. And all the while, its engines hummed with a noise like nothing I'd heard before, like the chiming of bells. And through the side of the thing, which glowed and flashed with changing colors, three words, Zoran F. Dofo meant as much to me then as it does now. Don't even think the elders in the town know what it means, though they say they do. Say it's the name of our saviors, the only name they have provided for themselves. But everybody just calls them angels. I reckon people thought they really were angels too, from the way everybody dropped to their knees and prayed wept, cried, and screamed to be saved. Then the craft spoke. The voice was light. It drifted on the breeze, mingling with the hum of the engines and the creaking of the tin huts. It was like music. In one year, on the 1st of April, they would return, spoke the voice. Until then, we must be strong, strong as we were now. Then, on that date, they would return with enough crafts for everyone, every man, woman, and child on every colony. From there, these small vessels would take their passengers to a much larger ship and the means of humankind's rebirth, the Phoenix. From here, we would be taken to a new world, a world the angels had found for us. 
The journey would be long, over a thousand years, yet throughout that time we would not age and die, but would sleep. Sleep frozen in suspended animation. We were about to leave hell, the voice said, ascend to heaven, and we were to think of the sleep as a kind of purgatory, cleansing us for the new world. Then, silently rising into the ebony sky, the ship left, left with a promise that they would return. And in a year, they did. Fourteen hours into the journey of the Phoenix. I'm so tired. Hungry, too. The air's running out now, for certain. I can feel myself getting lightheaded. Can't stop thinking, though. Thinking about it all. About me, you, and the angels. About how he ended up here. I'd never seen so many people. And I'd never seen so many so happy. They crowded eagerly, bustling towards the hundreds of little crafts that lined the horizon. I remember walking as the burning midday sun gave way to cool dusk. The cheers of joy, sobs of happiness, all lost in the continuous angelic hum of the many engines. The journey seemed longer than it was, 30 minutes at the most. Yet it could have been hours. Questions echoed off the metallic walls of the vessels. What would the Phoenix be like? What of New Earth? Yet no one seemed ever to ask who or what was Zoran F. Dofo. Even when we climbed into these clear, see-through coffins, leaned our heads on the hard steel surfaces, no one ever stopped ever paused and wondered. It's only now, laying here, that I find myself really asking. Find my eyes staring at those huge letters on the wall. I guess by the time you hear this, you probably know, yeah? Mystery over. Again, I'm jealous, because I'll never know. It's the not knowing that's worst, I think. Oh, I'm going to die, I've come to terms with that. When everyone else wakes and walks through those doors into paradise, my rotting little body will stay and mould right here. Maybe not. They'll probably call me the last tragic sacrifice for the future of mankind. Or some bollocks like that. Maybe I'll get a plaque. Yet I do wonder, I, I have to wonder, why? Races die out every day. The dinosaurs, the rills, but not us. We fuck up our own little planet, yet somehow manage to blunder on into space. Then we manage to fuck up out here. Just when it seems like the end is near, like just maybe we fucked up one time too many, they appear. Majestic and perfect, and what's more, they're going to save us. What makes us so special that out of nowhere, a technologically advanced race appears and offers to take us all off to paradise? Mankind saved again. Still top of the food chain and about to fuck up a whole new world. It doesn't work out. We were too blind to begin with, or perhaps too afraid, to even begin to question our place in the universe. 
too absorbed in our own self-importance that we just assume that, yes, of course, the angels have come to stop the end of oblivion and take humanity into the light. Maybe we don't need saving, or maybe we shouldn't be saved. Maybe it's our time to just die. Or maybe it's just mine, and I'm bitter. Sixteen hours into the journey of the Phoenix. I can't stop looking at the words. The more I think about the situation, the more it stinks to high heaven. I'm not tired, not hungry, and no longer afraid of dying. Now I'm just here, waiting for it to end. Now I'm not any of those things. I can see just how wrong this situation is. This ship, the layout, the caskets, it's not right. And deep down, we all fucking knew it. Angels are too good to be true. They always have been. The clues in that phrase, Zoran F. Dofo, it must be. Hiding in plain sight, a phrase that surrounded us the whole time, but we never even asked. Or maybe naively, we thought we might be worth saving. I've got nothing but time now though, and precious little of that too. That phrase is standing before me like a fucking monolith. The only thing I can see out of this glass fucking coffin, and for reasons I don't even understand, it's haunting me. Those letters filling my head, consuming me with a sense of dread that has no concrete cause. Yet still, those fucking words taunt me. There's something wrong with that phrase. Very wrong. And I'm not fucking dying until I figure out what those ten letters mean. What the angels really want. Z-O-R. E-N-F-D-O-F-O It was several moments later that the air finally began to run out and that the sounds of screaming began to emanate from the casket of Arthur Jacobs. Optimistic in his estimations, he survived only six hours in the airtight coffin before he began to suffocate. Unfortunately, his messages that he hoped would one day be heard by others of his species had been spoken in vain. Despite the words of the angels, there was no recording equipment. As he began to choke, he lay screaming, Yet it was not his imminent demise that filled his heart with fear in his final moments. His screams were mixed with sobs as the young man choked on his words, uttering in high-pitched tones the same phrase over and over again. Frozen food! Oh, God! It's frozen food. (laughs) 
three days since the departure of the Phoenix. The creature bursts through the door, its lungs heaving as sweat poured down its white fleshy body. It lumbered clumsily through the corridor, gasping and panting, its pace quickening as the end was finally in sight. With one final burst of energy, it lunged for the door. Its six arms flailing, it fell headlong into the kitchen and collapsed among the shopping bags which had been the cause of its distress. Panting and sweating, it lay for a moment. Next time, it would get a taxi. Lying there, attempting to regain its breath, a sudden roar resonated through the tiled room and echoed off the gleaming metal worktops. Gripping its stomach in distress, the creature let out a low moan. Evidently, all that exercise had made it rather hungry. Eagerly, it extended a slimy claw towards one of the bags. Where had it put that snack? Finding the rectangular package, it carelessly ripped the lid off and suddenly recoiled as the grotesque stench reached its snout. Rotten! The fucking thing was rotten! The creature looked at the shriveled form inside. Bared yellow teeth grinned up at him. The sight of the two gaping holes, which had once housed the man's eyes, sent ripples of nausea to the creature's stomach. A refund! It should get a refund! Gingerly, the creature looked down at the rotting food. Would that mean having to keep it in the house? Could it just take a picture instead? No, it was absurd. The effort wasn't worth what it had paid. And carelessly, it hurled the small, rotting form of Arthur Jacobs into the equally rotting contents of the rubbish bin. Student loans, credit cards, car payments. It would be hard to find anyone who doesn't owe some money to someone else these days. And who's going to help you out in these situations? Your bank? Well, in this tale, shared with us by authors C. Jorgensen and D. E. Govan, we meet a woman starting a new job at a bank, which has a rather unique financial relief exchange program. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Wafia White, Mike Delgadio, Sarah Thomas, Kyle Akers, Erica Sanderson, and Mick Wingert. So manage your loans responsibly. Pay them back in a timely manner. The last thing you want to be carrying are bad debts.
You seem nervous. Lauren looked up from the metal table. I, well, no, not really. What day is it for you now? What day? How many days since you started? Lauren adjusted her glasses and face mask, pulling at the straps that were too tight around her ears. Well, not including my training off-site, this is my third full day on the floor. Ah, good. So has Susan gone over the forms with you? Lauren shook her head. No, no, I mean, well, I haven't actually done any of the forms. I've just watched her do them. The manager's brow furrowed slightly. You mean, you haven't handled any customers yet? No, no, no. I mean, I have helped customers. But either Susan or Greg has done all the paperwork for me. And, well, obviously, I've worked here in the freezer a bit. The manager's face relaxed, at least as much as Lorne could tell behind the face mask that covered his mouth. Okay, good. Well, I think I'll have Susan shadowing you, but I want you doing most of the paperwork today as well, okay? That sounds good. I mean, Susan will cover the more complicated orders, but I want you doing at least some of the basic credit requests, deposits, withdrawals, and card issues. Susan will let you know if it's out of your scope. The manager pulled the double seal on the plastic bag shut, the zipper making an unpleasant squeal. You got the name down on this one? Lauren double-checked the form on her clipboard against the name on the bag, as well as the order number. Yes, it all looks good here. Good. And where do we set this one? Lauren set down the clipboard and put the bag into the appropriate shelf within the freezer. There were several different cases within the freezer, all with large shelves, each individually assigned an order number to keep everything organized. While not a large space, it was big enough to house about a hundred individual bagged orders, depending on the size and how much the shelves had to be adjusted. Regulations prevented each shelf from doubling up on orders to avoid confusion, so everything had to be well managed. After Lauren placed the order, the manager nodded approvingly. Good. Let's get on the floor. They stepped out of the freezer, sealing it fully. You know the code for today? Lauren nodded and put it into the pin pad, both of them taking off the freezer coats, face masks, and gloves, revealing their formal attire. A slick, dark blue suit with an orange tie for the manager, a gray skirt suit for Lauren. Always remember to go in there with full protective equipment. You got it? Lauren nodded, somewhat embarrassed by his strict tone. She hoped he wasn't suspicious that she'd done that. The manager continued talking as they walked back towards the floor through a narrow hallway. I know you've never had a problem. I'm not saying this about anything you've done. It's just that I had to fire someone a few weeks ago because they didn't wear gloves in there. Can you imagine that? A big breach of customer trust. For sure. I don't know. I had a bad feeling about that guy from the beginning. Just didn't have the right DNA. You know what I mean? Lauren nodded. Well, it's just that with this new program, people are already distrustful. I mean, customers don't trust banks as is, you know? They should trust us. We're all just normal people here, right? Or at least I like to think we are. He laughed a bit, and Lauren joined in with a chuckle, wiping the sleepiness from her eyes. It was only 8.45 in the morning now, and she'd been in since 7.45 a.m., helping double-check the new freezer orders from the day before. 
Anyway, we need to be certain we're executing on this new program. The province is going to be sending inspectors monthly to double-check that we're following regulations, so this has to be perfect. That's why we're going to have you in there every morning and every evening. Everybody is going to be in the freezer quite a bit for these first few months, because we all need to be experts on how we do this. Got it? Yeah. Yes, for sure. Good, good. Thanks for being on top of all this. Now go check with Susan, and I'll be opening the doors in a minute here. The manager walked off to his office as they arrived on the main floor of the bank. A pale yellow light fell through the windows, the morning sun slowly creeping higher in the sky. Lauren went and sat next to Susan's desk, which faced directly towards the main double doors of the bank. It was a small branch in a strip mall, with essentially one main lobby, two ATMs, a hallway full of offices, and, behind the desk, the vault, the money counter, and, newly installed after an extensive renovation process, the freezer. The bank had to be shut down for two full days just to install the freezer itself. Several more days were needed to redo the electrical, ventilation, and so on. How you doing, Susan? Good. Just about ready to go here. Enjoying the cold? Lauren smiled. Well, I don't know. It's fine, I guess. Talking idly, the manager walked to the doors and pulled up the security bolts and undid the main lock. All right, opening up here. There were four people opening besides the manager. Lauren wasn't very fond of Greg and Allison, who worked primarily in the business section of the bank, hadn't talked to her very much at all. Susan, despite being quite a bit older than her, had been very nice to Lauren, and she'd grown to like her quite a bit. The first customer walked up and, as usual, it was an older person. The man walked lamely through the door and shuffled up towards the counter. As usual, to Lauren's frustration, Greg had found this the opportune moment to go to the bathroom. So Lauren waved at the customer and Susan stood behind her, trying to make it look like she was doing something else besides overseeing what Lauren was up to. The old man was wearing a brown corduroy jacket over plaid, with old blue jeans and a co-op hat. The lines of age were deep in his face, and a long nose protruded like a gargoyle guarding his mouth. The eye sockets were carved in his skull like a wooden figure, and the single eye was all the more striking in contrast to the empty socket parallel to it. Morning. Morning, sir. How can I help you? <clears throat> I'd just like to make a withdrawal. Of course. Can I get you to put your card in the machine there? Lauren pointed to the pin pad. The old man entered his pin, and after getting the amount... Lauren counted it out for the man, and then politely bid him on his way. All right. I know I know the answer. But basically, there is no form or anything for just a withdrawal. Nope. Just double-check on the computer that it posted to his account. Very rare that it doesn't, but if you don't see it, it needs to be entered manually. If it's there, close out of his account, and you're done. There was another old couple that ended up being handled by Greg. And as the next customer came in... Lauren straightened up in her chair. The customer, an older lady in a long dress that looked somewhat out of place, it was green with flowery ruffles, approached the counter and tried initially to speak. Lauren leaned forward in her chair, her elbows on the counter. Sorry, ma'am, I didn't quite catch that. 
She tried again, speaking louder, and Lauren could see now that she had no tongue. Lauren, trying to be polite, handed her a pen and paper. Sorry, ma'am. My hearing is a bit bad. If you don't mind writing that down. The old lady wrote on the paper, I need to make a withdrawal. Lauren smiled. For sure, ma'am. Can you just put in your card and your pin, please? The account came up on Lauren's computer immediately. The checking account was almost empty, less than $100. The lady's savings were not much better, and her credit card had a sizable outstanding balance. Lauren's heart sank as she thought momentarily about her grandmother. How much would you like to withdraw, ma'am? The lady wrote down on the piece of paper, $200. I'm sorry, but there's not enough funds in the account. Lauren wrote down on the piece of paper, so as to be subtler, $89.11. The lady frowned and then wrote $80. Lauren got the lady the money, and she walked out the door, which was held open by a man of about 30, wearing a nice leather jacket and brand new jeans, who Lauren could not help but notice was missing a finger. Poor lady. Susan agreed. I hate those cases. I'm sure her pension will be coming in soon, but you never know what those folks are going through. The rest of the morning proceeded much the same way. None of the cases were too eventful, mostly withdrawals, deposits, and so on. Lauren was somewhat unsettled by a few cases where a customer was missing an ear. Another had obviously had his nose removed at some point and then surgically reassembled when he could, perhaps, afford it, and so on. Finally, the type of customer Lauren had been dreading since she started at the bank entered. The man that swung open the double doors almost flew into the bank, visibly distraught. He was carrying a folder full of disheveled papers and receipts, his hair a mess and face red, probably from crying. It was clear that some sort of trauma was about to be spilled upon Lauren, and more than finding out what it actually was, Lauren despised the waiting to find out. Greg was dealing with another customer at the other counter, and Susan whispered in his ear that they may need to take an office, but to see what exactly the issue was first. The man approached the counter. Hi, sir. What can I help you with? The man swallowed bitterly. I... well... I I need some help, if you don't mind. Certainly, sir. What's the issue? He was visibly trembling, and he crossed his arms on the counter, somewhat awkwardly close to Lauren. I... well... I... I, well, I... I just... I I need some help with my debt. I... God, I'm, I'm only 27, you know? I just... I have these student loans... And I bought a car a few years back, and it just, my rent, I made a mistake, and I took out a loan, you know? And, well, I just, I, just, I don't, I, I heard about this new program, right? And, well, I'm healthy. Here, why don't we come to one of the offices over here, sir? We can have a bit more privacy. The man nodded, his eyes welling up with tears. He collected himself as Susan and Lauren went over to one of the offices and shut the sliding glass door. Susan took the lead from here, with Lauren listening to how she handled things, scribbling notes on a small pad of paper. What's your name, sir? Stephen. Okay, Stephen. 
So you heard about the exchange program? Stephen nodded. Okay, well, I see you have a folder there. I assume that's some information about your debts? Stephen nodded again. No tears were visible in his eyes, but his silence was undoubtedly a buffer to prevent their return. Well, the way the exchange program works is that it can only cover certain kinds of debt. You understand? We can talk specifics in a moment, but I just want to give you some background on what it can do to help you. Debts extended by our bank specifically can be covered by the exchange program. And even then, it is only used to cover the most common forms of debt that have a set regulated interest rate. What the exchange program does is wipe that debt out completely, with the main condition being that you cannot access that same kind of debt for a minimum of one year, and possibly more, depending on the type of organ or appendage being extracted. Is that clear? Stephen nodded. Well, I... My main concern are my credit cards, and... Well, I've thought about it, and... Would you mind putting in your card and pen? And I can look at your situation a little more closely. That way I can directly give you your options. Stephen nodded and did as she asked. Lauren could not help but look at the man's accounts, and he was sitting at $5,000 of debt on one card. That was completely maxed out and $9,178.53 on another. Lauren's heart fell into her stomach. Who knows how much he had left in student loans. At that moment, Stephen shed a tear, which he wiped away as subtly as he possibly could. Susan looked at him. Okay, Stephen. So, we have a few options here, okay? We want to help you. You're right that this is the type of debt you want to wipe out right away. This can get you in serious trouble. Your student loans and other forms of debt are much more manageable once this credit card debt is dealt with. And what the exchange program is designed for is exactly this kind of case. The government set this all up as a means of helping people with medical issues, right? Susan was pulling out a large binder and some pamphlets for Stephen to look at as she said this. On the pamphlet... Lorne could see the syrupy sweet full name of the program, the Gift of Life Exchange Program. A photograph above it showed a bank worker holding the hand of a smiling man as they both looked over some sort of form, likely not even an exchange form, she thought to herself. It was probably some stock photo taken five years ago, sitting on some obscure stock photo website until it was extracted, bought out by the bank, and put on this pamphlet. This pamphlet. So basically, whatever organ or appendage you are willing to give up not only wipes out your debt, but helps supply our healthcare system with parts that might not otherwise be available. Now, this is a decision you should not make lightly. Have you talked with us before about this? I have, yes. I... I was at another branch. I think the guy made a note on my account or something. Susan was checking his account, and there was indeed a note from a little over two months ago. I've thought a lot about this. Like I said, I've talked with my family. I don't want to go bankrupt. I don't. Stephen was on the verge of tears now, but collected himself again. Lauren's hands were shaking out of anticipation for him. Listen, Stephen. We are here to help you. This is an opportunity to not only help yourself out of debt, but to help someone else in dire need, okay? 
This is not an easy decision, but it's one you need to make for our future. There is no pressure. Susan flipped the binder to a page with a rather morbidly direct chart, listing dollar amounts next to certain organs and body parts. Now, certain parts are worth more than others. Kidneys, for example, can help wipe out a standard amount of $5,000, as can pointer fingers, certain toes, and so on. There is a registry that we have access to here that can help us determine if certain rare parts are required immediately for emergency surgery. Would you like me to check on that? Stephen nodded. Ab- absolutely. Susan pulled up another window, having to enter a rather complicated login that also involved scanning her eye in front of the sensor at the top of the computer monitor. Okay, Stephen, I have something here. There is an emergency surgery requiring a left arm up to the elbow. A paroxysm of fear clutched Stephen visibly. The grip Lauren had around her pen threatened to break the plastic coating of it. She gasped audibly and felt slightly embarrassed, tightening her lips together as if trying to prevent it from happening again. Now, according to government regulations, this is an appendage that would wipe out a minimum of $30,000 worth of debt due to how severe the procedure is. I would need to do a formal consultation with our branch manager, who would need to contact the Provincial Health Board, of course. But I can tell you that that is the minimum awarded so far in similar cases. You could have a minimum of $30,000 worth of debt wiped out, as well as a minimum of a month leave from work to allow for recovery. In addition, this award is tax-free, again, to allow for some relief. There will be severe conditions placed on your ability to access credit, but this will wipe out your credit card debt along with some other debt which we can arrange together. The government often considers student loans in emergency cases like this. They wouldn't do it for a kidney, but I can tell you with a degree of certainty this would be approved. Is this something you might be interested in? Lauren could hear her breath through her nose, her teeth grinding lightly in the back of her mouth. Susan sat still, face fixed in an almost statuesque calm. Stephen sat in silence for some time, looking at his left hand, extending the fingers, clasping the hand shut in a fist, rotating his elbow. Well, I... I am right-handed. If you need to call someone, that's fine. He took another breath of fear, his exhale broken almost in shivers. No, no, if I... Well, there's no need. Would you like to talk to our manager? And possibly our on-call surgeon? We have a surgery room reserved at a nearby hospital for this program. I do not mean to press you, Stephen, but for cases such as this... It is an emergency for that person that needs the arm. You understand? Stephen finally looked at Susan and Lauren with resolve. I'll do it. Are you sure, Stephen? Yes. Okay. I'll need the branch manager here to witness this. She called the manager on the phone, and he swiftly came to the room and shook Stephen's hand. Ah, I see you need a hand with your debt. <laughs> The branch manager laughed out loud at his own joke. Stephen relaxed a little bit. Yes. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, I suppose I do. I'm glad you considered this, my friend. It's not easy, but I think this was a great decision on the government's part. Great decision. We can help people in two different kinds of need this way, you know? Win-win. Stephen nodded. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. For sure. 
The manager signed an intent-to-participate form, which Stephen also signed. Susan signed as a witness, and then Stephen got up and left with the manager for another room. Susan entered Stephen's name into the database, sending an email to the health authority as a notification. A request in regards to the student loan debt accompanied it. Lauren was sweating at this point, the moisture soaking uncomfortably into her undershirt. She was thankful that she'd worn a skirt suit, praying the jacket would hide it. She sat in silence for some time. This is... What is it, Lauren? This is... Well... (laughs) I guess it's just all a bit morbid, isn't it? I don't know how to say it. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that this type of thing was an absolute no-go. Susan turned around. I was a bit shocked to see it at first, too. But you have to understand... Susan saw how nervous Lauren was, and her face became almost frightened. She grabbed her hand. Ah, Lauren! You look absolutely pale! Look, like I said, I was a bit shocked at first, too. But you have to understand how severe the whole debt situation was becoming. People needed a way to escape it. And, well, this was necessary. I mean, you saw the debates on the news and whatnot, right? This wasn't overnight, and it's so heavily regulated. There's such a process. It's okay. These people are better for it. I guess. Yeah, I just... It's the bank that gave him all that debt. And now... Look, these people are going to university. They're going on trips they'll never forget. They're getting homes and cars. I mean, not to put you on the spot, Lauren, but if I told you that you could... Where's your dream trip? Lauren thought for a moment. Probably the Mediterranean. You know, Italy, Greece, Spain. Backpacking kind of thing. Susan smiled. I'd love to go there too. But I'm more of a sit-on-the-beach gal myself. (laughs) Okay, let's say I told you right now you could go to Italy, Greece, and Spain debt-free if you gave up your pointer finger. Would you do it? Lauren was taken aback for a moment. Well, I don't know. But you're considering it already, aren't you? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I am. Now, imagine if it wasn't about a vacation. Imagine if it was wiping out debt for a loan you needed to take out for. Whatever it was. That's what the exchange program was made for. For the people that can't even consider it. They've made a mistake, and now they need a way out of their situation besides bankruptcy, or living in squalor, or whatever it might be, for the extreme cases. But but some of these cases aren't even extreme. Or at least, they don't seem to be. Isn't it? I mean... (sighs) Well, of course, Lauren. But all of us have scars, don't we? Scars we didn't even get to choose. These are scars we can choose. Lauren was silent. Here, we need to get back on the floor. The start of the afternoon. Lauren could not help but wonder what some of these people had done to lose their appendages. A hand missing here, a foot there. Most people who had something visibly missing were only fingers. But then Lauren began to wonder how many were missing parts that could not be seen. How many of them were sitting in the bank's freezer right now? How many of those severed limbs, teeth, 
tongues, ears, organs, how many of those had she herself handled? The manager came out with Stephen's full case. A pang of frost-like dread passed through her chest. Is he going through with it? The manager nodded. Surgeon's already called. Government's approved wiping out his student loans. Surgery's set to begin in an hour. Lauren could not imagine what it would feel like waiting that long to lose one's arm. Susan, show Lauren how to process these forms, okay? And pay close attention. This is very important to know how to do properly. Suddenly, the double doors to the bank swung open, and Lauren was instantly seized by vain, freezing fear. A low sigh, almost a groan, escaped her throat. The manager grabbed the back of Lauren's chair. This is a severe case. I know this fella. Let me take your seat here. The remains of the person that was walking towards the counter must have had some unimaginable obligations to pay off. The skull was fleshless, the remaining meat on the bone so patchy that it was no longer obscene to walk about without clothes. What remained of the person's organs were so feeble that the actual appearance of the human being, that is, the skin that once covered the now mostly non-existent organs, was impossible to imagine. It must have been a man. The manager would never have called a lady fella, but it could have been a woman, for all Lorne could tell. The soft clack of the person's bare heel and toe bones on the tile reminded her of a crow's beak opening and shutting. The person approached the counter. Hi there, Ian. What can I help you with today? The person's skeletal hand, with only a few scraps of flesh upon his palm and fingers, grabbed a pen and wrote on the notepad the manager had already placed on the counter, payment, another 1500 The manager nodded approvingly. Okay, how would you like to pay? The skeleton scrolled on the notepad again. Sorry, in a hurry, we'll leave here. Before the manager could ask what was meant by this, Ian grabbed at the remaining muscle on his calf, wresting it from the bone and holding it aloft in the air. Ian! Ian! For God's sakes, this is simply not acceptable. Have some... have some respect for the other folks here. Others in the bank were turning to look and gasping, yelling. A younger girl in line pulled out her phone and was probably recording what was going on. Susan quickly handed the manager a plastic bag, which Ian deposited the muscle into. Lauren's heart was thudding, drum-like, in her chest... The manager then placed the bag on a scale, and after recording the weight, he clicked his tongue and, annoyed at the rather unceremonious handling of his payment, looked at Ian. Sorry, Ian, you're just a little bit short here. Present rates, that could cover $12.50. Ian then looked around at his body, at what could cover the other $250. With almost no hesitation, he grasped at his rib, plucking it off with a moistureless, hollow crack.
In our final tale, we hear the dark and twisted story of a stalker. When a man is obsessed with a woman who wants nothing to do with him, his attention and carnal desires can be revolting. But in this tale, shared with us by author J.L. Schnell, we learn of one man who has used technology to torment the woman he desires, both directly and disturbingly indirectly. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Jessica McAvoy, Jeff Clement, Atticus Jackson, Kyle Akers, Wafia White, Mary Murphy, Aaron Lillis, and Jesse Cornett. So pray you don't meet one of these guys, now or in the future. You don't ever want to know the kind of guys that fuck the robots. The thing was looking at her. Her breath condensed in the morning air, but the air in front of it was clear. It smiled blankly out onto the courtyard, and even if she hadn't found it outside of Jeff's first class, she would still have known who it belonged to. She looked down from its face. Tight white sweater that looked like cashmere, which would get stained in art class or at lunch. Slacks at least a size too tight, and in the wine red that used to be her favourite colour, before Jeff leeringly told her how much he liked her in it, and how much he'd like her out of it. Hair in an elaborate braid crown that would be too fidgety and obnoxious for her to even bother with. A carnival mirror version of her. A facsimile not of her, but of the person she saw reflected in his eyes. Its nipples were erect, hard enough to make her hiss out an empathetic breath, feeling the pain for it. When it moved, its breast swayed gently under its sweater. Jeff obviously had decided a bra would be a detriment to the object with her face. As the gorge rose in her throat, she realised his changes to her must be more than clothing. He had never seen her naked, thank God, but she doubted it would look like her even if he had. Why would he give his perfect her the pinky toenail that grew in crooked after she closed it in a door when she was ten? The mole on her inner thigh... The scars on her knees made when she was six and just learning to skate. He certainly wouldn't want the mortifying hairs that grew on her areolas sometimes, or her mismatched labial lips. All the imperfections had been removed to make this horrible doll. It spread its legs even further, and with a dulled sense of horror, she realised he had foregone panties too. Watching the simulacrum's copy of her mons push lewdly against the zipper of its too tight pants... Its blank smile never changing made her stomach give another horrible lurch. Now at least she knew he hadn't copied her exactly. A bitter comfort. The thing's eyes met hers. It lifted one hand and slowly dropped its fingers one at a time, starting with a pinky, all stiff and horrible motion. Bile stung the back of her throat, and she ran, slamming into the nearest bathroom, bouncing her knees achingly against the tile and her shoulder against the stool, and retched helplessly. It was trying to wave, she thought feverishly, and filled the bowl.
You know, Steffi, you don't have to look at this so negatively. Think of how much money that young man spent to just get a piece of you. Why, I would be honored by the attention. But I don't want his attention. He's gross. An understatement. A painful one. Only the beginning of how she felt about him. Sweetie, his mother is always talking about how much he likes you and how nervous you make him. I bet you're just misunderstanding him and that talking to him would clear all of this right up. Stephanie slammed her fists on the kitchen formica, impotent, barely even making a noise. I don't want to clear it up. I don't want to talk to him. I hate him and I hate you. She was grounded for two months. Her mother's useless response to her distress was something she should have expected. She rewrote most of Stephanie's life even as she was living it. Jeff's previous stalking was attentive courting, like something out of a Regency romance. Her attempts to get her mother to at least stop being friends with his mom ended with her being told that she was being controlling and unfair. She was desperate to describe how it felt, but didn't. She wanted to scream about the violation until they listened, make them understand her acid, raw throat, how it felt to see cum dripping from the side of her own smiles, hideously empty. But she didn't. She'd always known her feelings had never mattered as much as other people's comfort did. The school was no help either. I'm sorry, Stephanie, but it doesn't really break any school policies. The counsellor had looked uneasy, refusing to meet her eyes, clearly uncomfortable. Stephanie didn't feel any sympathy for her. No policies? It's... it's harassment. It's distracting for me and others. And it violates the dress code. Has he spoken to you? No... Left you notes, threatening or otherwise? No. The counselor smiled. She tried to look soothing. She failed. Then it isn't technically harassment. At this point, we can get him for the dress code violation, and we will discuss that with him. But he claims it's a study aid, and we found no evidence to refute that. This was her third meeting with various administrators. She learned the first time that all screaming got her was threatened with suspension. Sick, tired, she leaned until she caught the counsellor's eyes and tried to speak steadily. He's raping me. Every day. Every day. And every day, you are raping me with him. That earned her a three-day suspension and another two weeks of grounding. But no help. No help at all. AJ-675B, Birch Industries' most advanced android yet, was mostly used for simple labour and service tasks, but was built to be capable of much more. Most people were wary of using their full capabilities, but when fully powered on, it had the ability to adapt and learn at the rate of an average human four-year-old. Hello.
She had learned a lot about the AJ-675B since one had arrived at her school. There were no laws in place for something like this yet. There was a case like hers in Massachusetts, but it would take years with appeals and would almost certainly end up at the Federal Supreme Court before it was all done. Legal experts predicted it would take at least another four years just to receive a verdict. A new law would take many more, and every day, the thing waved. One day, he'd even got close enough to say something, but when it opened her mouth, she covered her ears and ran. She'd heard AJ-675Bs talking on YouTube at this point, and couldn't stand the thought of a crispy version of her own voice making its way out of the thing's throat. She spent the first month of her grounding alternating between screaming into her pillow and crying in the shower so her mother wouldn't hear and demand she talk about it. She didn't even try to do her homework and had to duck multiple lectures. Every day, she saw her own face watching her, and soon she flinched from mirrors. Three months ago, Jeff had cornered her in the arts building. She had forgotten a project that was due at the end of the week. She'd considered leaving it for the night, but she wanted it to be perfect, and she figured she needed every one of those days to make it look the way she wanted. Jeff's bus had already left, and the art teacher usually stayed an hour or so after school, so it should have been safe. It hadn't been. He'd had her pressed against a wall before she knew he was there, his rank onion breath pressing on her, making him a multi-sensory oppressive experience. He didn't touch her. He liked to brag that he'd memorized all of the school rules and knew exactly how far was too far. Keeping her hedged in by his arms, flexing in a silent threat, looming over her, keeping them barely an inch apart so she had no room to escape. None of that would be enough to even get him detention. Pushing him away to run, though, would have been an attack, and the zero-tolerance program would mean she'd be suspended. So she stood there, trying not to cry. Stephanie knew he treated that like a win, and she couldn't stand the thought of him winning anything, even a cruel, meaningless game he had created himself. So, uh, Trevor told me you gave him a blowjob, Steph. Did you think I wouldn't find out? You think I'm okay with you using those perfect lips on another man's cock? Go away. You need to go home. My mom is waiting. Our moms are at a movie together, dipshit. Remember? He leaned in just a little more, somehow not touching her. His grin seemed bigger than the world. Time felt endless. Okay, Jeff. One, I've never given anyone a blowjob, especially not Trevor. Two, we're not dating. I don't like you. And if I decide to do stuff with other people, your opinion wouldn't matter. Three, (laughs) Steph. His voice, sickly smooth, made her armpits break out in an almost instant cold sweat slime. Steph, baby, I think you want to shut up now. I'm a really nice guy, a great one even, but I got a temper, you know? She did. 
He'd never done anything that anyone could prove, and she wanted to think he was as powerless and frightened as she was, but she wasn't willing to test that theory. After all, not getting into fights with other guys in school didn't mean there wouldn't be things he'd be willing and able to do to girls. Girls like her. Alone and vulnerable, and so scared she couldn't almost believe it wasn't killing her and... Stephanie? They both swung to look at Mr. Taylor, standing in the opening to the hallway. He was frowning, his messenger bag hanging from one shoulder. Jeff was three steps back now, hands in his pockets, face sullen, but the anger magically gone. Mr. Taylor herded them both out of the building, then turned to Jeff, smiling falsely. Jeff, right? Why don't you head on out? I need to talk to Stephanie about her art project. She was so grateful. Tears pricked at her eyes, and she almost didn't hear when the teacher spoke up again after watching Jeff leave silently. Stephanie, you're a smart girl with a good head on your shoulders. But there are some things you still don't understand about the world. And one of those things is that boys don't always know how to stop. Don't lead boys on if you're not prepared to face the consequences. Okay? I'd hate for something bad to happen to you. He patted her shoulder and insisted on walking her to the city bus stop and asked if she was okay before leaving and she knew instinctively that he was another man who would never question whether or not he was good. The second month of her grounding, Stephanie spent buried in research. Legal information, technical documents, personal anecdotes and blogs, all of the information she had on the things she got during those weeks of frenzied digging. She learned that while there may not have been a way to defeat Jeff, there were certainly things she could do to stop the monster he had brought into her life. She did her homework in between research binges, but she didn't put any real thought into what she turned in over the course of that long, brittle January. The day Stephanie returned after her suspension, the counsellor called her back into her office. Ms. Adams, smiling widely and looking very pleased with herself, had let Stephanie in and motioned for her to sit in one of the two equally uncomfortable chairs facing her desk. So, I wanted to see how you were feeling about everything. If it's made you feel better. That was a confusing track Stephanie had not expected her to take. If the suspension made me feel better? The counselor frowned, and under the frustration there was an uncomfortable flicker of hurt. We talked to Jeff. It's gone? The frown was deeper now, the hurt more evident. Stephanie's excitement wilted as she realized she was not having the reaction that was expected of her. No, but we told him the clothing choices he was making for his android made you uncomfortable, and he agreed to dress her differently from now on. Clearly proud of her actions, she looked at the girl in front of her, waiting for approval. Stephanie's utterly uncomprehending look seemed to hurt her on a deep, personal level. In the end, 
It took almost 15 minutes of reassurance on her part for the counsellor to allow her to leave, leaving Stephanie more tired than she thought was possible. The AJ-675B had a built-in kill switch, of course. It had been law for androids for five years now. Even old models had been required to be retrofitted with them, so Jeff's pet definitely had one. The problem with that idea was that it required either a very specific kill phrase that would cause a complete system reboot, a shutdown sequence that required it to be auxed to a computer, or to be submerged in water at least 30 feet deep for at least an hour. It had worn overalls and a crop top today, and every time it had walked, the sides of her breasts had been visible under the light, fluttering material. Jeff's obsession had started in elementary school. Sometimes she would just stop and wonder at that, at how much of her life had been lost to him. Their moms had been friends in college, ostensibly there for degrees, but really just there for husbands. And when Stephanie and Jeff had been born within three months of each other, they had started to plan the wedding. Stephanie wanted that story to be a joke, but she knew it wasn't. She'd seen the scrapbooks. They thought it would be romantic, the sweetest thing in the world. Jeff thought it meant he had a right to her. She was pretty in what she thought of as a quiet way, one she never tried to enhance with anything, which pleased and enraged him in turns. She knew from letters and rants that he liked how fuckable she would be in the morning, but he wanted to make other guys more jealous than he did now. In second grade, he had announced to their classmates that the two of them were married. He'd punched another boy for talking to her. She'd gotten a lecture about hurting his feelings when she'd been upset. There was a brief period when public opinion had shifted in her favour. In fifth grade, he'd begun fighting with anyone that tried to sit near her. He kept announcing they were married, now not as cute. He broke someone's nose and screamed all the time. Stephanie's mother had banned him from coming over. He was now a dangerous boy, one she didn't want near her baby, and that began a six-month-long fight between her and Jeff's mom. Jeff was pulled from school to be homeschooled and taken to a therapist, and for a while Stephanie began to hope that she wasn't married anymore. She made friends, and a crush named Chris. And then one Saturday morning, Jeff and his mother appeared on her front stoop. She could still remember how fast her stomach had hit her feet when her mother opened the door. She remembered locking eyes with him while his mother apologised, begged for forgiveness, talked about how much she had missed her best friend. Jeff had walked over, asked for her forgiveness, and kissed her hand without ever changing his strange grin. Their moms had hugged and sobbed and Stephanie's new life was dead in its infancy. It's okay, she'd written later in her journal. Chris's hair wasn't that cute anyway. She'd learned how to find friends that he couldn't manipulate, and he learned about rules and exactly what their boundaries were. Her friends now were stoners and weirdos and sad art kids, and her mom hated all of them. But they all loved her and hated Jeff and she couldn't have survived without them. John had a crush on her that they both knew they couldn't pursue, but he kept between her and Jeff as much as possible. Caroline drew weird impressionistic paintings of the android throwing itself into the sun. 
Mike shared his stepdad's weed and quoted Vines word for word, exact tone and timing until she thought she'd pee herself laughing. She loved them all, and they kept her too busy for the dates her mom kept trying to make mandatory. Caroline had gotten her out of those. She told Stephanie to keep an open package of condoms in a secret place in the bathroom. Her dad found them and put his foot down, one of the few times during the whole Jeff saga. She could only go on group dates from now on, because no baby of his. Stephanie had tuned out the rest of his lecture, and ducked out on every date after, running to the arcade and the library and John's family pool any chance she could, clutching at any ounce of freedom she could pull from other people. AJ-675B was a machine. She latched onto that thought, wrestled with it during the last week of her grounding, looking for the meaning in it. Why was she stuck on it, she wondered. It would leave water before it could hurt it. She didn't have any hope of accessing a magnet that could affect it. They were studying Einstein in history, and she had been thinking how carefully their books tried to divorce him from World War II when she understood what she had been trying to understand. AJ-675 was a machine, and EMPs could hurt machines. Okay. I feel like EMPs should be harder to build than this. She announced this to her father's empty, semi-detached workshop, library book and camera slippery in her hands. The hardest part had been finding a disposable camera, but you could get anything online, and now she owned one, the only part of the process that would come from her own pocket. EMPs were, maybe because they were so easy to make, super illegal, and she was glad her father owned everything else she'd need. She'd watched Investigation Discovery, Knew they could track things through printing numbers on wires and stuff, and that she would be found out in a second. She didn't plan to leave the EMP device anywhere, but she just knew they'd catch her if she used too much of her own materials. Here, though, was a treasure trove of wires and soldering, all of it several years old. The book and camera went on his work table, and she set to building with a grim determination, certain that this would be the perfect crime. She was running, hand in agony, Mike right behind her, cackling his thin, high laughter. <laughs> behind them, at least one building was on fire. Teachers and students were screaming, and her camera was melting into the thin, synthetic carpet of the hallway. She had meant to do it alone when the time came. Didn't even want to burden her friends with the knowledge of her crimes. But Mike had come across her as she was setting up. He had weeded the truth out of her, then helped her scope out the perfect spot. They needed to be close enough to the thing that the pulse would wipe it out, but not so close that they would be visible, and they had finally settled on a small alcove in the hallway. Mike had given her his hoodie so that they could both slouch against the wall and look completely unimportant to Jeff and his friends. The camera, pressed between her hand and thigh, covered over by the hoodie, might have worked, 
She wasn't sure because when she'd hit the button, there'd been a loud pop noise and the smell of burning plastic had filled the air. She dropped it and they'd booked it out of there, her hand now starting to hurt and the smell of burning getting worse every second. By the time they were out of the building, she had joined Mike's laugh and they both skidded into the bathroom, ignoring the fire alarm and hitting each other, almost screaming. Mike whooped and jumped around the bathroom, grabbed her hand and laughed again. You fucking rule, Stephalese. Look at this. You got all cut up when the plastic exploded. That's what happened? Shit, I thought I had a burn from that thing. <laughs> she looked at the blood and laughed with him, then shoved her hand under the cold water and yelled in pain, holding her wrist with her other hand to keep from drawing back. No, no, no. The whole thing kind of blew up in your hand. I saw a flash of light, and then, like, six pieces fall out, and then you were running, so I followed. Guess I should have bought new wire. She looked at the cuts. One along the side of her palm was fairly deep. The other in the fleshy part near her thumb was pretty shallow. She washed them out for a few more seconds, then they both began to meticulously paper towel wrap the cuts, before heading out to join the swarms of kids heading for the fields farthest from the fire. And miss all this? Hell no. You didn't just stop an evil robot. You sent a message. The next day, she found out she hadn't done anything. There was some smoke damage to the building, but nothing else. They didn't even get the day off afterwards. And, like every morning... The thing sat outside Jeff's first class and watched her. February and the depression spiral that had immediately followed the disastrous failure of the EMP device were drawing to a close when she finally noticed something was different. First class had just ended and Jeff had walked by with a huge wink, his awful machine following behind but not as closely as before. In fact, she realised, it hadn't been close to him in a while. When it first appeared, it had walked arm in arm with him, or it fluttered around him like a stiff but elegant bird, desperate for his attention. It was wearing a one-piece blue suit, with shorts that fluttered around its thighs today, but the clothes fit differently somehow, resting oddly on its shoulders as it followed him close, but not too close. She had pointed it out to John. Hey, does something seem wrong with it today? Like, it looks weird? I can't... He was already looking at the thing when she started talking. Yeah? It's been weird for a while. We tried to tell you, remember, right after everything happened? As a code word, it probably wasn't the most subtle, but she understood. You didn't try to tell me. We did. You just said we were trying to make you feel better, so we stopped. She watched the thing with her face stop back around the corner Jeff had just turned around, and she understood. Its shoulders are stiff. That's why that stupid outfit looks bad. Can they get sick? Is it sick? I don't know, man. You're the one who knows everything about them. 
He grabbed her arm gently and led her in the opposite direction, towards their next class, but she kept her head turned back towards it. When it turned the corner, they met eyes, and she realised something else. For the first time in its existence, it hadn't waved to her. Math class went even worse than usual, and she stumbled out with extra homework and a headache. Mr. Kreisper's voice was still hollering behind her, but at least now it was just lunch, free hour, and art. The weird class schedule meant extra math today and chemistry tomorrow, but also gave her one day a week that was half fun. She'd waved goodbye to John on his way to history after eating, and was debating, half out loud, between extra food and extra art time, when she heard a strange voice behind her. We like art best. The thing was behind her, and it had finally managed to speak to her. Who knew where Jeff had gotten voice clips to send in, maybe from her own mother, but wherever they had been obtained, it hadn't been enough. The thing's voice was weirdly accented and didn't follow her same rhythms. It had been trained enough to sound human, but it was a weirdly generic human voice, just a flat effect voice trained to emulate their region, but nothing else. We? We. Us. We're the same. Stephanie took a step back, hand out towards the thing. She could feel her face curl up in disgust, but the creature reached out and took her hand. She didn't know if it misunderstood or was choosing to ignore what she had meant, but its grip was too tight to tear away from. We are not the same. I am a person. You are something horrible made to hurt me. It looked hurt. Had the audacity to look hurt, like it could understand anything that was happening. And then Stephanie was running from its cries, hands over her ears. Caroline was in the library when she stumbled in, comforted her, offered her theory. I think the EMP worked. It's still up and running, Caro. But now it's worse. I don't think you killed it, obviously. But I think you rebooted it. So? So? Don't you remember what you told us? When they are completely on, that style of android has the ability to learn and grow at the rate of a four-year-old, Steph. Can they feel emotions? They looked at each other. Stephanie's face felt too tight. They're... they're programmed to react like they can. Caroline leaned back in her chair, face as tight as Steph's felt. Sounds like a yes to me. Stephanie began to watch it every day. Since their one conversation, the thing didn't try to speak to her anymore, didn't wave or smile. It seemed to be avoiding eye contact and was keeping closer to Jeff. She tried to arrange meetings between them when he would be in class, but it would also have gone into the classroom by the time she pushed through the crowd to meet it. She was marked late for class three times before trying a different strategy. He had lunch after her on Wednesdays, which was why the thing had been able to find her without him. He would be in class, 
The thing would be near him, and she had a free period. She just had to find out where he was, and she would have an hour and a half to wait the thing out. Fuck, if only she'd tried to figure out his schedule before. It would have been smart to help her avoid him. Why hadn't she cared before? She wasted most of her lunch slinking around looking for any signs of either of them, following his friends at a distance and trying to eavesdrop. Finally, frustrated and devoid of any other idea, she went to the hallway where they had first spoken and looked around corners nervously, slowly. She thought she was ready for anything, but when she poked her head around and came face to face with the creature, she almost screamed, swallowing down all but a small noise that made the thing smile. I did not mean to startle you. Overly formal language is a significant failing of the AJ-675B, and it takes several hours of voice training with a subject for this quirk to diminish, she thought with a flush. You didn't. You acted startled. I startled myself by being weird. Why are you here? It gestured to the nearby doorway. Why are you here? You have free period now, then art. You do not come to this area until your third period tomorrow, when you have social studies. She felt sick again, and forced herself to push through it. You really know my schedule, huh? The thing looked her in the eye, expression calm, but lips dropping at the corners. Jeff wanted me to learn everything about you that he knew. Jeff wants many things. You know that. She did. What did you want with me? I was... I was really mean to you, and I... felt bad. Its face, her face, changed. Eyebrows up a little, bottom lip down a little, eyes a little wider. Was that her surprise? You? Mean? No, that was her sarcastic surprise. Okay. Yeah, mean. You've been unkind since I was born. Why care now? Because you seem to care. Is that... Has something changed? It looked at the doorway between her and him and clasped its hands between its thighs. A mannerism of its own, Steph realized, not one from him or her. Maybe none of its faces were her either. You accused me of existing to hurt you. Remember? Stephanie rolled her eyes and smacked her on the arm lightly. Yeah, it was like a week ago. Of course I remember. The thing next to her didn't even glance over. You were wrong. I was not born to hurt you. We were both born to be hurt. Stephanie tried to laugh, face too tight again. Someone downloaded Nietzsche, huh? Next to her, she looked down at the hands trapped between her thighs. 
and sighed like she had lungs to fill. Caroline joined End Android Oppression as soon as Stephanie told her the plan. John joined next, but Mike took a little longer to convince, because EAO was a stupid name and he wanted a better one. They asked him two hours later when he'd sobered up a bit, and he joined, but only after they told him what he'd said when he was high and he'd had a chance to laugh at himself. Great. So, do we actually save it? And also... Why do you care if we save it? It speaks, and it thinks, and Caroline's right. I can't think of any difference between feeling emotions and being told you feel them and have to react to them. So she feels, too. He's hurting her, and she knows that now. And that's my fault. John's hand was warm on her shoulder, and his voice kind in her ear. So... Do you want to shut her down? Caroline sketched out a call to action on the poster board. Isn't that basically killing her? Do we have the right to kill her? Did Steph have the right to give her life? I don't know! I mean, I didn't mean to. Does that make a difference? He shrugged. Maybe if you kill her without meaning to, it won't count. None of it mattered in the end. Stephanie didn't even know how far out that sentiment stretched. What she knew was this. After two hours of arguing, they had segued into their normal sleepover plans. Steph's mother thought she was just with Caroline, with the decision to sleep on it and talk about it more the next day or the day after that at school. Now, though. Now. Across the common, near the tree the rich kids hung out under, her doppelganger stood next to their tormentor. She was smiling blankly and waving slowly. It was too late. He had found out and destroyed her, and she hadn't even been able to save either of them. She moved closer, feet clumsy, and hoped Jeff wouldn't notice her. It had been kinder, perhaps, for the girl to become a thing again, to forget how to feel and to hurt. Maybe, if she had enough time with it, Stephanie could convince herself she felt jealousy and not despair. The flash of metal was a surprise, but she didn't register it. Not even when Jeff coughed. Not even when he looked surprised, or when the bright, bright red, the colour of tempera paint, that's all it was, began to pour out of his mouth. He looked at her at last, confused, and then they both turned, almost magnetically, to the perfect her with the lovely blood-stained outfits and complicated fidgety hairstyle as she pulled out the knife and put it in him again and again and again. She and Jeff and her reflection that wasn't her at all sank to their knees almost as one, for once all in understanding, and before the screaming started, she looked at herself and herself looked at her, and together they whispered one last thing. I just wanted to protect you.
as we place the letters back in their envelopes, it's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.